And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. It's Wednesday. It's February 23rd, the year of our Lord, 2022. Winter, I don't know, maybe fading in the rear view. Spring, somewhere on the horizon. But our numbers haven't gone anywhere. We were looking over this yesterday kind of forensically. I always want to say the word. I never really know what it means in the world of data and analytics. But as I've told you guys, we don't do the off-season on the show. And you have obliged there to the point where our podcast numbers actually haven't gone down. They've gone up a little bit since the last time a college football game got played. Really appreciate that. It kind of befuddles everyone else in the company here because this is supposed to be the time, allegedly, where you guys all leave. Uh, couldn't be us. That's all I said to him. Couldn't be us. Very professional response in the meetings this week. But thank you so much. You know how this works. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. This is above and beyond what we do on Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Now we have kind of met in the middle because of your request. We've started to put some of these individual answers on the YouTube channel. Not the whole thing, but you can find some of them there. So if you want to see that, you can go check it out. Please subscribe while you're there. But hey, the five-star reviews you've been giving us on Spotify and Apple and everywhere in between, they've been helping the show out a whole lot. So I put out a tweet normally late Monday, did it late Monday this week. Give me the questions. You flooded us with questions. We've got several to go through here. And with that, we waste no more time. Let's dive in. So the first question here comes to us by way of Xavier, and it's talking about a topic that we've talked about a whole lot lately. He said, why would a college football commissioner be good for the sport? Wouldn't he or she be just another suit elected by the suits that are already messing up the sport? This is a good question. This is what's dangerous about the concept. It's also why a lot of people don't think we'll ever have a college football commissioner. And to be clear, kind of what Xavier's talking about is what we have in the NFL. A lot of people look at Roger Goodell. He makes 30 or $40 million a year, which is wild, by the way, if you didn't know that. But really, people look at Roger Goodell and they say, Yeah, his name tag says commissioner, but what power does he really have that the team owners didn't give him? Answer, none. He has no power that the team owners didn't give him. And so Xavier's asking, uh, well, what would be the difference in college football? Everyone cries, oh, we want a commissioner and we need a commissioner, or at least a lot of people cry that. But what would it mean if we had one, if that person was only there to be essentially a puppet for the conference commissioners, the university presidents. And the answer is it wouldn't mean all that much at all. You'd still get the same outcomes. You'd still get the same things being dictated out as decisions being made for, uh, as they would put it, the betterment of the sport. It would just come from one voice, seemingly, rather than a whole bunch of voices. But there is another train of thought here. And the train of thought is Xavier or anyone else Look around now. We don't have that in college football. There is no singular voice right now. There is no same page right now. They couldn't even agree. The conference commissioners, university presidents, they can't even agree right now on something as simple as a playoff structure. And that's with all of them wanting to expand. So how are we going to have that? Well, the answer is you may not have it. You may look at it and you may say, we'll never have it. Which brings us to the next part of this question. If we were to have it, what would it ever look like? think about what you would be asking. If you, have a, if you had a college football commissioner, what you would have to have happen before that is you would have to have a lot of people who have power currently all meet and say, you know what we feel like doing, guys? Let's give up some of the power we have. Does it sound like something that these folks are ready to do? It doesn't to me. It doesn't to anyone who covers the sport or is close to the sport or watches the sport. So I don't ever think we're going to get there. I'd be happy to assume the role, but you know, I would love to be a college football commissioner in which I was elected by the people. That would be fun to me. Uh, This game, in some ways, has never belonged to the fan, though. It's best. It's the best one out there for the fan. 
but it's never really belonged to the fan if you pick up what I'm putting down. So, Xavier, I don't know that we'll ever have a college football commissioner. And to your question, if we had one, but all they were really doing was the bidding of college football commissioners and university presidents, it really wouldn't mean a whole lot of anything. Because right now, when everyone says, I want a commissioner, what you're really saying is there's so much disagreement out here. We can never get on the same page. We need one voice. We need one authority. Sounds great in theory. In reality, it wouldn't be great if you had the wrong person in that chair. But also, in theory, it sounds good. But in reality, it doesn't sound great because you, you won't ever arrive at that point because no one who has the power is ready to give it up. So that's where we stand with the whole college football commissioner debate, if you will. Moving right along. Good question, though. And I don't think we've heard the end of that. I think a lot of people are going to continue to cry for one but secretly behind the scenes not really want one. Our next question this morning comes to us uh, by way of really someone whose name I don't even know how to pronounce. So I'm just gonna leave it there on the screen. If you're watching this eventually on YouTube, you'll see it. Next question though, out of the teams that haven't been to a playoff before, who do you think has the best chance to break through in 2022 as a way too early pick? Now this has gotta be Texas A&M, doesn't it? Because I was thinking, and again, out of the teams that I haven't already made it, who would qualify here? Well, Texas A&M, first and foremost, is my answer. Now, that's not my pick, but if I had to go with one, that's the one that has probably the highest percentage chance. Texas A&M is in a situation where if you look at whatever the playoff has told us the minimum baseline requirements have to be, either from a roster talent standpoint, uh, what kind of coaching staff do you need? What kind of recruiting do you have to have done? And now, what kind of quarterback talent do you need to have on campus? They got multiple guys they're going to be able to choose from there. But also, they've got that talent level. The cupboards are full. Uh, they've got a premier coach there. Whether you want to call him elite or not is really beyond the scope of what we're talking about right now. It's Texas A&M. I mean, certainly that's the answer in the short. But then if I expand it out a little bit, who else could there be? So let's say the answer is not Texas A&M. Let's say you came to me with your Magic 8 ball and you said, hey, I want to give you a little heads up. You know the 2022 season, it's eventually going to be here, and I have it on good authority via this Magic 8-Ball. A team's going to make the playoff for the first time. Hint, it won't be Texas A&M. Who do you think it'll be? If it weren't Texas A&M, probably my next choice would be North Carolina. But I'm really interested where you'd go on this. Out of the teams that haven't made it, who else? I, I guess Texas would be a popular answer because they just picked up Quinn Ewers. So you know, how close or how, how much difference rather do you think Quinn Ewers makes there? To me, it's such a slam dunk for Texas A&M because a lot of the maybes out there, a lot of the variables from some of these other programs that you're having to guess about, they already have, you know, and they got Max Johnson to transfer in from LSU. And then you already have, well, you got Connor Wegman coming in and you, you've got a, an injury situation out there where you're trying to get guys back. So I'm interested to see how their quarterback situation pans out in the spring. But Texas A&M for a few years has really been a team I've watched in person several times and thought, man, like they, they look the part. They just hadn't had the offense. They hadn't had a quarterback play. They may have that this year. I think they certainly will have it in the next couple of years. But if it was not Texas A&M, I think North Carolina would be the direction I would go. And it wouldn't just totally shock me if USC or Texas just popped up out of nowhere simply because they have elite quarterback play in winnable conferences, you know? So that wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world either. But A&M's got to be my answer. I, I will be listening, though, because I'm very interested with what you guys have to say there. Moving right along, our next question 
Which direction are we going here? Sometimes I pause to gather thoughts, even though I don't really need to. Next question from Andre. If last season happened in the BCS era, how would you reconcile it? The best thing the college football playoff has done, I think, is give teams a slight margin for error in which one loss isn't fatal. With the BCS, Georgia, number one for most of the year, would get no shot in 2021. So is that fair or foul? Well, this is a really interesting question for me because of the stance I've taken on the playoff. To be clear, I've told you not only do I think four is plenty, I think four may even be too many. I'd rather just go back to the BCS model. Well, what Andre's saying is, all right, well, let me hit you with a scenario that already happened. It's not hypothetical. Georgia, in 2021, we just saw that team lose a game. They go on to win the national championship. So clearly, they were qualified, like they were worthy. But if we were in the BCS, Andre's saying they wouldn't have even been in the national championship game. And you're probably right. The reason I say probably is because we can't just assume that the seeding would have worked out apples to apples. You know, in other words, if you're a committee member and you know you have a four-team playoff, you can afford to drop Georgia. Just as long as you still got them in the playoff, you can afford to drop them. Whereas if it were the BCS, I, I'm not, I think it would have worked out the same way. I don't know. But let's just assume for the sake of argument, yeah, Georgia would have fallen out of the top two. They would have been out. Here's my personal feel, but it's radically different than most of your feels. My personal feel on it is I'd say, oh, well, because this kind of happened to Georgia in a way in 2007. 2007, they lost a game to Tennessee. I don't think they lost again. They ended up, I think, winning the SEC. And they were, they were like the, a National League or American League wildcard team. They were called the hottest team in the country. They were that team that no one wanted to play at the end of the year. Well, I've never really, I never really cared about that in college football, only because I want your entire body of work to matter. You cannot have urgency in week one, week two, and week three, but also reward the hottest teams in the country at the end of the year. Because by default, those games at the beginning of the season, you look at and you say, yeah, you can afford to lose that one, and it's not really going to be a big deal as long as you get right later. There's a healthy balance of that. I don't want a lot of that. So anyway, back to my point I was going to make. With Georgia this year, maybe they wouldn't have made the national championship game. And maybe I would have looked at that and said, oh, well, you know, what would have been Alabama, Michigan, I guess? I would have looked at that and I would have said, oh, well, that's a really good team that had a shot. You know, Georgia had a very workable schedule. They had one hard game and they got beat soundly in the SEC championship game in that one very difficult game. And I'm talking about after the Clemson game in week one and Clemson ended up being not quite the product we thought they'd be. So clearly Alabama played one elite team and they didn't get the job or Georgia played one elite team. They didn't get the job done. I would be OK in a world where we looked at that and said, that's tough, still a really good year, tough break, but you controlled your own destiny and you let the opportunity slip through your hands. Now, obviously, there would be an outcry that we need to expand past two because that kind of team, it deserves a shot. Well, that's okay. We did expand past that. And here we are now. And congratulations to Georgia. They were plenty good enough to win a national championship. Look, you can go to the other end of the spectrum. You remember that SEC championship game? It was Georgia versus Bama, right? Well, there would have been multiple championship years for Alabama where they wouldn't have even been in the national championship game if we were back in the BCS era. So for those of you out there who hate the stranglehold that Alabama has had on this sport and you think expanding a playoff is what's going to solve it, need I remind you the expanded playoff to four teams, just four. That's given Nick Saban a shot at a couple of more titles that he has gone on to win. 
So I was okay back in the day where you could finish third or fourth, you go to a really high level bowl game, but no, you're not playing for national championship. But the reason I tell you my feel on this is in the minority is because as I told you explicitly on Late Kick Live the other night, I don't let my passion for this sport revolve around a national championship game. Never has. So I care about the regular season. So I'm totally fine with looking at a team that has a really good year and loses one or two games and doesn't get a shot to play for national championship. I'm okay looking at that and saying, really good year. Way to go, guys. You're not going to play for a national title, but way to go. Like you've still accomplished a lot. That's just the different lens with which I look at this sport through. In the NFL, that's not how I watch pro sports. But in college football, that's how I watch college football. So Andre, I will tell you this. At the very least, if we were back in that BCS era again, wherever Georgia ended up going in bowl season, you sure would have cared about it. Because I remember that 07 season. And I remember they played Hawaii in the Sugar Bowl. And everyone was glued into it. And today, that would be called a meaningless bowl game. You know, a lot of people call those meaningless bowl games. And so if that's the trade-off, for expanding a playoff, nah, you can keep that. I want to go right back to contracting to as small of a postseason championship model as I can have in exchange for maintaining the integrity of every other aspect of this sport. That's just me. Good question, though. Really good question. Next up, we have Marissa is in the building. She asks, which school's spring practice is going to play the most pivotal role in determining their 2022 season outcome? Now, I got a few answers here, but I really thought first and foremost about LSU, but I can go several directions here. But I want you to think about LSU because LSU is a program, obviously, with a new coach and Brian Kelly, and it's also a program in a lot of transition culturally. So the way this works to me from now moving forward, because we're in the transfer portal era now, is you have a big transfer portal window, uh, unfortunately, that overlaps with hiring season. We just went through those. So Brian Kelly, he's on campus now. LSU had a lot of guys leave. LSU had a lot of guys come in. But now we're going into spring practice. And this is the first time where these new coaches get to lay eyeballs on their new team, on a practice field, going through their drills, running their plays, and trying to implement their formula. Well, how critical are those practices? Think about that for a second. If you're Brian Kelly, you don't even know all the names on your roster. Because you've tried to drink water from a fire hose for the past month or two months and trying to acclimate yourself, but now it's time to actually play some football, or at least practice it. Well, think about Brian Kelly every day. Every day, he is learning more about his roster in one, two-hour practice than he could have known from years and years of studying pieces of paper and film. And then they get to reassess as a staff after you get into spring practice a little bit. And then what do we have? We have a spring game. And then we have the curtain dropping on spring practice, but then there's that second transfer portal window. That's what's so important about this. Anytime a new staff comes in now, it's not just, all right, here comes spring practice. I'm going to see the team I have. Well, yeah, you're seeing a majority of the team you have, but you always know if you go through spring practice and you just, you hate your tight end unit, or you think you're terrible at outside linebacker, you always know there's that one final reservoir. There's that one final, um, you know, little little press if help needed button over here, and that's the transfer portal's second window. So I'm very interested whether it be Brian Kelly at LSU, you could say the same thing about Billy Napier at Florida, uh, you could say the same thing about Lincoln Riley at USC, Brent Venables at Oklahoma, all these new coaches who have come into high-profile programs 
where we've already seen some roster turnover, don't assume the roster turnover is done. Those guys are going to go through spring. They're going to learn what they have and probably more importantly, learn what they don't have. And then some of them are going to pretty desperately try and hit that portal because this is, for better or for worse, a new age of college football where no one cares that it's year one. No one cares. No one's going to care. When Brian Kelly, if, if he exited September two and two, no one would care that, oh, it's year one. We're not focused on record so much this year. Yeah, you are. Yeah, they count that first year just as much in the record books as they count year two, three, and four. So everyone wants to win immediately. And unfortunately, sometimes you don't have the pieces to do that. A lot of times that's why you have been hired because the product wasn't good enough. Well, you're still dealing with the leftovers of that product. You got to remake it as quick as you can. And a lot of times that second transfer portal window after spring that's what you need to pay attention to. So that's what I'm watching. All these new staffs. I mean, you could go both of the Virginia schools, same way. There are a lot of programs that fit this description. Look at Penn State. They don't have a new head coach, but you got a new defensive staff up there. How's that going to change things? So there's a lot of places you can look at and you can apply that. Notre Dame, same way. Uh, so man, we could do a, we do like a whole show just looking at the transfer portal window after spring for new staffs. But we're not going to do that this morning because we got to keep moving. And move on, we will. Our next question comes to us by way of Footsteps Falco, good friend of yours and mine. Footsteps Falco asks, what is your favorite WrestleMania match ever? And why is it Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat at the Pontiac Silverdome in 1987? Well, it's not, to answer your question. That is top three, though. Uh, my favorite WrestleMania match is Austin versus Bret Hart at, I believe, WrestleMania 12 or 13. It was in Chicago. I know that. A submission match, beautiful. Absolute ton of blood. Oh, it was so gory. It was great. Uh, but it was a perfectly executed double switch. Anyway, you know what's interesting about this question for those of you who don't like wrestling is you should at least watch those matches. But also, footsteps there. He mentioned the Pontiac Silverdome. That's where the Lions used to play, obviously. It was in Pontiac, which is just outside of Detroit. Well, they destroyed that building now. Only a few years ago, though. And there's a Lions fan in the building, regrettably so, who probably knows what I'm about to talk about is true. But the Pontiac Silverdome for a long time, it just sat outside of Detroit and it was old and decrepit. But what was interesting is when YouTube came around, a lot of channels, a lot of independent channels popped up where people would just go explore abandoned buildings. And a lot of people made really good money on YouTube putting videos together where they just went in the Pontiac Silverdome. And this is a place where everywhere from Hulk Hogan to Barry Sanders to Elvis to the Pope, I mean, the Pontiac Silverdome was around for a long time. So a lot of big names appeared there and you could do like the wipe then versus now, then versus now. And it's crazy to look at the Pontiac Silverdome in its prime and then you wipe to what would have been modern day. And, you know, the roof's not on it anymore at that point. So it's just open and it's been exposed to the elements for years and years and years. I don't know what that is. I don't know what they call that. It's not nostalgia, but I don't know what they would call that. But that feel of looking at something that once was this and now it's been reduced to this. But I remember being sad when I watched that because, see, to me, little kid who grew up as a wrestling fan, when I think of the Silver Dome, yeah, I think of Barry Sanders and the Lions. But then in the very next breath, I think of WrestleMania three. That's a huge event. It's the first time they ever put 90,000 or more in a building to watch wrestling. It was Hogan versus Andre the Giant for the title. It was, it was Steamboat versus Savage, obviously. But to see all those people in there and then to see that now it's just sitting out here wasting away, oh, I hated watching that. But yet it was so addictive. 
And then I got down this rabbit hole for a long time of watching all sorts of different things on YouTube. By the way, some of you have suggested channels to me that have nothing to do with college football, but I've done this. So like some of you have, well, some of you have suggested train hopping channels. And yes, I already knew about most of those, but there are all kinds of different little niches out there that, that you never would have thought of until you get sucked down the rabbit hole. And then you realize, wow, I'm really fascinated by this. And that's just one of them. Exploration videos, abandoned buildings. There is a place, in fact, a few of them back home in Harris County, that if I ever start a new channel along those lines, I may have to take you inside of. Whew. Harris County is, there are some corners of Harris County not many people have visited, but if you know the right ones, it's scary, but it can also be entertaining if you show it to a, a worldwide audience. Good question there, though. This is what the Late Kick Extra podcast is. It doesn't stick strictly to college football. It just sticks loosely to entertainment and college football with a, with a heavy tilt towards college football. All right, let's move along here. I think, I think we're probably going to get it back on track at least somewhat. Next question. Jordan asked, well, first off, he just flat out said, Jordan just demanded, hey, I need more West Coast content. All right, well, ask the question. And then Jordan did. He said, but the question is, what are your thoughts on Oregon and what they're doing? I'm going to hit the second part of what he said in a second, but what Oregon's doing right now is very interesting. I want to say it was, I forgot who wrote it, and I apologize because it was really good, but there was a feature put out, I believe on ESPN.com, by one of their national writers the other day about the approach that Oregon is taking. And it probably goes over a lot of people's heads right now because you just think, oh, recruiting is recruiting, but that's not always true. See, some programs out there well, some programs recruit nationally. You know, Ohio State recruits nationally. USC under Lincoln Riley, they'll recruit as national as they want to. Other programs do not even go into it under the misguided notion that they can recruit nationally. And so they have to recruit to a specific plan. Northwestern football, for example, does not use the same blueprint as Texas football. But then there are a lot of programs who are maybe in the middle. There's a huge chunk of programs actually who are in the middle. Oregon used to be one of those programs in the middle that chose the developmental strategy. Oregon used to be a program until fairly recently that said we cannot recruit heads up with Alabama or with Miami back in the day or, or USC on the West Coast or Texas. And so what we have to do is we have to understand our limitations and not wave a white flag, but we just have to go about it differently. We're going to get guys that maybe don't have offers to the big programs and then we're going to have a great developmental strategy. We're going to have a rock solid core set of values and end up being traditions up here, and we're going to be a winner, but we're not going to do it with a bunch of five-star talent. That used to be the Oregon way, but it's not anymore. It's not. And now Oregon's gotten themselves into the mindset that, no, we're just going to recruit nationally. We're, we're going to win with high-level talent. We're, not, we're going to develop it once it gets here, but we're, we're no longer just a developmental program. Well, here's what's interesting. They just lost one of the best recruiters in the country in Mario Cristobal. That's not the end of the world as long as you replace him with someone who is close to being equal to that caliber. Well, that's where the big million dollar, multi-million dollar question, in fact, enters the room. Is Dan Lanning that person? And is the staff he put together, is, is that staff that staff? And there are, early, there are early returns from the West Coast that some people around the program are very confident that Dan Lanning put together uh, the kind of staff, just like Mario did at Miami, quite frankly. It's not getting as much buzz because it's, it's all the way out on the West Coast. But Dan Lanning knew what he had to do when he just walked in the door and so we put together a whole lot of guys who know how to recruit. But it's, it's kind of a signal. It's kind of a flare that Oregon is sending to the rest of the country. Because I can tell you a lot of people were interested in watching what Oregon was going to do if and when they ever lost Mario Cristobal. Were they going to try and maintain recruiting at a high level in the top 10 to 15 range every cycle? Or 
were they going to probably dip back down in terms of ranking as they redefined and reassessed what their core strategy was? Well, they've chosen and they're going to choose to go get the players. That's what stands out to me. You want to know, we were talking earlier about which spring practices to watch. Oregon's another one. Oregon is a very key spring practice to watch. And then, of course, every one of these first seasons are going to be important. But I want to see how this pans out. Is Oregon going to be a program that truly can look around and say, no, we arrived and we're not giving it back. We're not leaving. So you're seeing their schedule. If, if you're watching this video right now, and we're going to put it on YouTube, they open against Georgia. And that's going to be just, that's saucy. That's delicious. But then they slowly dive into conference play later in September. And you know how the Pac-12 is. You run through the entire thing. It's, it's just going to be really fun to watch because you're looking at it and they don't play USC in the regular season. Uh, they go to Oregon State at the end of the year, got Utah and Washington back-to-back -back in reverse order. But Oregon, yeah, that's, that's my thought on that. Good staff he put together, he being Dan Lanning, and now let's see if they can recruit nationally at the pace that they were. Now, as for the second part there, we need more West Coast content. Hey, I'd love to load this thing up with West Coast content. Sometimes I look at the comment section and I see people say, this is an SEC podcast. No, it's not. It's not an SEC podcast at all. I'll sit here and talk about Washington Husky football or Oregon State football all day. You got to ask for it. And when we release it, it's got to do at least comparable numbers. It would be totally irresponsible for us to get about one-sixth the traffic for Pac-12 content relative to Big Ten and SEC content, but still do it proportionate. That would be bad. I mean, I'm going to give you a little behind the scenes here. We did some USC segments last week. We did some Arkansas segments. Our Arkansas segments did six times the traffic, six as the USC segments. So when I structure the show, I just want you to know, we're structuring it the way that you have demanded we structure it. You decide how much West Coast I talk about. You decide how much uh, Midwest and Big 12 I talk about. You do, not us, you do. I love to do a national show, totally national. Everyone gets equal coverage. That's how I'd love to do it. You got to demand it and back it up with the numbers that we see. This is, after all, still a business. Moving on. Moving right along. L.A. Longhorn up next. How big of a recruiting shift would there be in a state where there's one Power 5 school if a second Power 5 school was added? Louisiana, for instance. Plenty of schools and talent along I-20. And I-10, for that matter. So um, this, is, this is an interesting question. I've never had this posed. And then I started to think, well, what states are we talking about? Now, to me... When we're talking about which states with one Power 5 team would change if there was another Power 5 team, well, this is a very small sample size because to me, I don't think we're looking at, at um, you know, Nebraska or something like that because there's, there's not a huge bed of high school talent in Nebraska, especially relative to Louisiana, okay? So to me, when I was looking around, I couldn't find another one. I couldn't find another state where there's only one Power 5 program that if we added another one, it would divvy up a, a wealth of high school talent. Couldn't find it. There are states with one Power 5 program, but they already are, are very sparsely populated in terms of high school talent. But I'll tell you what I did find. I found one example that would be interesting if, it, if, if one of the programs was taken away. And I was thinking about South Carolina. So South Carolina has Clemson University and South Carolina. And I was wondering, you know, even though there's not as much talent per capita, in South Carolina as there is in Louisiana. There is a lot of in-state talent in South Carolina. And I'm really wondering if Clemson didn't exist or if South Carolina didn't exist, how much better would the other be? That's the first thing I thought. 
Then the second thing I thought was, wait a second, the state of Georgia kind of fits this description because even though Georgia Tech also kind of, I mean, it's right there. It's like an hour down the road from Georgia. Georgia Tech and Georgia do not recruit the same player. And there is, there is no other presence. There's no other major recruiting presence in the state of Georgia. So if you really want to know what the closest parallel is to Louisiana and LSU, it's Georgia in the state of Georgia. But what they have in Georgia is a lot more transient population than they have in Louisiana. And by that, I simply mean a lot of people live in Georgia who didn't grow up in Georgia, especially in Atlanta. They didn't grow up there. A lot of people also live in Louisiana. Most of them came from Louisiana. You don't, like I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is right next to Fort Benning, which is an army base, which means every other kid you meet at your school is from St. Louis or from San Antonio or from Salt Lake City. They're from all over the country, all over the world, really. And there's some kids that are from Columbus mixed in there, but it's a 50-50 shot when you walk down the hallway, whether you're talking to a kid who even grew up where you're from or not. And it's really that way in Atlanta. And so when Kirby Smart and Georgia recruit their state, yeah, you look at the 2023 and 2024 class rankings and player rankings, and you may see, oh, Georgia's loaded this upcoming cycle. Boy, they got, they got 15 players rated four or five stars. That's great. And it does bode well for Georgia. It's not a bad thing. But when you dive into it, you start realizing, oh, man, look at all the four and five star talent that has left Georgia over the years, even with Kirby Smart there. Well, it's not because they they uh, shirk the responsibility of recruiting the state. It's because a lot of kids didn't grow up thinking, man, I got to play for Georgia. They don't care all that much about Georgia in many cases. And so really, I was looking around. I don't know of any other situation. That's why LSU is viewed as one of the best jobs in America. Uh, Nick Saban famously, once upon a time, was at Michigan State and his agent, and he did some work when he was offered the LSU job. He's talked about this many times, and they realized that per capita, there was more NFL talent in the state of Louisiana than any other state. Again, when you adjust per capita for total population. And you don't have to fight anyone there. And especially back then. The, the real only thing that changed that perception was when Saban came to Alabama. Saban was one of the first and still really is one of the only ones who's ever successfully recruited the state of Louisiana at scale without being at LSU. So I don't know that there is another example of that, to be honest with you. There may be some states where if you put a third one in there, it would really throw things into the wood chipper or kind of the alternate point of view. If there are two power fives in a state and you removed one of them, what would it look like? That's kind of the South Carolina example. Virginia would be another one I'd be interested to look at there. That's an interesting question, though. I'll tell you what's also interesting is how sucked in sometimes you can get on these topics and not even realize it's time to do this. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I got to do it sometimes to you. I'm very sorry, but um, if I don't sneak some of those ad breaks up on you, I know your patterns. I listen to podcasts too. I know you guys fast forward right through it, so I got to be careful there. I got to get you at least five or 10 seconds in before you realize it. Uh, let's roll on this morning. Got some questions left to get to here. Michael asked, why would an NFL playoff format not transfer well into college football? A very simple concept here, but there are a lot of different schools of thought. A lot of people look at the NFL and they see, boy, there are more playoff teams in the NFL and these playoffs are exciting. Why wouldn't you want that in college football? Well, the answer is simple. If we had 32 college football teams and college football teams were not entities attached to universities, if they were just built solely as football teams, and there was a ton of parity and equity-based approaches to building college football, I'd want an expanded playoff because we would probably get something that mirrored what we get in the NFL. That is not what we have. To be clear, think about the, what is the NFL? The NFL stands for National Football League. It is something that was solely built to produce professional football to you as entertainment. And everything they did about building it was built with competitive equity in mind. So no one built the NFL to say, let's make sure small market teams are disadvantaged relative to major market teams. They did the opposite. They built the entire sport because there was nothing else they were beholden to. So they built the entire sport to be equitable and be completely equal. There's nothing too tall, nothing too short. Everything looks very similar from 50,000 feet so that week to week, anything can happen. When you have that, I don't really care how big your playoff is because, I mean, it's going to be competitive from the regular season perspective. And therefore, the variance in the very good and the good and the kind of good and the not so good, it's just, it's inches compared to feet and yards in college football. The NFL, it's a platform that was built for football. College football was not built for football at all. In fact, college football didn't even exist. We built universities as as entities of higher education. And then eventually someone came along and said, how about some extracurricular activities to do at these schools? And people said, okay. And then one of them ended up being football. But by the time you started playing football at every university, some of them started 50 years before the other. Uh, some of them were parked with prestigious names attached to them that had very deep pockets. Some of them were in portions of the country where it's just more conducive to playing that kind of sport outside 24-7, 365. The point being, there was never a prayer that college football, as it was constructed, was going to be equitable and was going to be built with competitive balance in mind. It was never gonna be that way, and it's not today. And what aggravates me to no end is listening to and watching coverage of our sport where people spend all day, every day, seven days a week saying, how do we get balance in this sport? I've got the answer for you. You don't. Stop wasting your time. Move along, go take a baking class. Move on to something else that could actually produce or yield a result for you down the road. Trying to get balance in this sport's not gonna happen. So the question was, why wouldn't that playoff format work? Well, it would technically work like they could carry it out. It would fundamentally ruin what I love and what many people love about the sport. And I would also add this. It would ruin it for some of you and you don't realize it would ruin it. You wouldn't realize it until it was too late. But the reason that wouldn't work out is for what I just said. If you took the principles that are applied in order to get what we get in the NFL, that means we would have to view all division winners as equal and conference winners as equal, if you want to phrase it that way, in college football. And in the NFL, I'm okay with that. Because whether you win the AFC East or the NFC South, 
you have done something that clears enough of a competitive hurdle that you automatically should have an auto bid into a playoff. In college football, think about how vast the gulf is any given year between saying, I just won the SEC versus I just won the Pac-12 or I just won the American Athletic Conference. But yet I got some folks out there, a lot of y'all, who watch watch college football and say, how come we can't do it exactly like the NFL does? Well, because it's not the NFL. In fact, other than the shape of the football and the size of the field, there's not much semblance between the NFL product and college football. So I have no interest in it. Uh, And also, you know, I go back to what I've said many times and I'm tired of repeating it. I do, this is me personally speaking now, and this is all I can go on is my opinion. I don't watch college football for the same reasons I watch the NFL. I watch the NFL and, uh, and always have with one eye towards the playoff. And everything is about how this impacts that playoff down the road. You always got your eyes cut over there towards late December, early January. That's great. That's, it's a great product. It's just that college football doesn't have to be the mirror equal of the NFL. I could watch that on Sunday and think that way on Sunday and also watch the product on Saturday and be completely fine with week three meaning everything in the world. No, I was at the Oklahoma Baylor game and Baylor upsets Oklahoma. Baylor storms the field. And I remember thinking that day when I was flying home that night, you know, what was great about today is I wasn't really looking as that field was being stormed or, or as I was in Dave Aranda's postgame press conference or we were doing our live hits after the game. I wasn't thinking about the playoff. I was just thinking about how great this day was. To me, that's college football. Saturdays in the fall. That's what college football has always been about to me. So that's why it wouldn't work for me. I know, I know, I know a lot of you think, okay, if you like that now, then an expanded playoff would only give you more of that. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Because that day, for example, in Waco, Oklahoma would not have walked out of there knowing their playoff chances were all but done. Therefore, that game wouldn't have been played with that kind of urgency. Therefore, it would not have been as must-see as it was. Therefore, the very fabric of what makes Saturdays in the fall what they've always been your entire life would be gone. You would have sacrificed that for a shot at having, I don't know, a couple of extra playoff games at the end of the year. I've never been about it. It's never appealed to me, so that's, that's where I stand on that. Let's move on. Playoff talk. Man, it's not going anywhere, is it? Hmm. I'm looking at, looking at the questions we had about the playoff on my screen right now. There's a whole lot of them. Uh, let me get this one in here right quick. Michael asked me, what got you into college football? I'll tell you what got me into it. It goes back to the question I was just answering from someone else. What got me into it is when I was growing up, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a strong family attachment to any major university. A lot of my buddies grew up and my dad went to Georgia or, you know, my mom graduated from Florida State. Well, I didn't grow up with that necessarily, but I grew up with an attachment because in my house we watched college football. But I remember when I would watch college football and I would watch Major League Baseball, I watched all the sports. I just remember how different that sport felt than everything else. And it's not that I didn't like the other sports, but I developed a love for college football because of its uniqueness. And it felt to, to me as a kid, it felt so much more pristine it felt pure. It felt like if you go out in, in Yellowstone National Park or if you go out in a national forest out in California, you feel like you're experiencing something that hasn't been ruined yet, you know? And it, you look around and the first thing you think is, boy, it's a good thing we've maintained this. Let's do everything necessary to maintain this. I always looked at college football and said, 
even as a kid, I didn't know how to articulate it, but I looked at it and said, there's something that feels a little more pristine about that. It just feels more pure. It feels like it hasn't been touched by whatever's touched all these other sports. Call it commercialism, call it whatever you want to. It just felt different, which kind of, I guess, lays a lot of the foundation for the arguments I make against fundamentally changing the structure of the sport, because that's what I've always loved about it. The first time I ever was allowed to stay up past midnight it was to watch a national championship game and then the coverage afterwards. The first time I ever went to a major sporting event, it was a, well, it was a Braves game in the 90s. It was Braves-Mets, 3-2 to two loss in extra innings, Fulton County Stadium. But besides that, it was a college football game. And I remember being on campus, see, because I, I went to NFL games in the Georgia Dome a few times when I was growing up for the Falcons, and I would go to, you know, all the college campuses. And I remember how different it felt. And I remember thinking to myself, that's Saturday sport. That's for me. And then you've got bands, and you've got, you got kids who were in high school one year ago. Kids who could have been at Harris County High School are now playing for Tennessee and they're playing for Florida and Georgia. And I always just thought to myself, how crazy is it that those kids have been going from playing in front of a few hundred people to playing in front of a few million people just like that over the span of a calendar year? That, that still boggles my mind, to be honest with you, but that always boggled my mind back then. Um, the pageantry, the tradition, the fact that if I were to go to a family reunion at the aforementioned Lake Widawi Lake House in, in Widawi, Alabama. I would listen to my uncles and my cousins and brother and all that stuff. And uh, well, I don't have a brother, my brother-in-law and my dad and, my, and everybody. I mean, they're talking about games that happened 30 or 40 years ago with vivid recollection. I just never heard people in pro sport circles talk like that. Maybe I didn't grow up around it. Maybe that's why. But I grew up in the South. And so everybody spoke English. Uh, to varying degrees, and college football fluently. Those were the two languages they spoke. So, Michael, that's what got me into it. What got you into it? I bet it sounds pretty much the same. Uh, Dustin, next up. He said, is Penn State doing the right thing, starting Sean Clifford instead of handing over the reins to Drew Aller? Dustin, now I'm not going to say that you are misguided here as a person. I'm going to say the question is a little misguided only because I'm not necessarily sure I understand it. I, I, where did we announce this? Like, where has it been announced Sean Clifford starting week one? To my recollection or knowledge, we haven't even had a spring practice in state college. So we don't even know who Drew Aller is. I mean, we know as a person, we know as a high school recruit who he is. We have no clue who he's going to be as a Penn State quarterback. We haven't even seen him go through stretch and stride periods in shells in practice one of spring one. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is if Drew Aller were to come out smoking and, and he just, he completely commands the huddle and commands the offense and moves him down the field all spring, when James Franklin meets with the media after the spring game, I don't know what he's going to say. I'll tell you what he's not going to say. Sean Clifford starting week one. He wouldn't do that. I mean, he wouldn't handcuff himself like that. I will tell you this though. Sean Clifford has been around a long time. Uh, and Sean Clifford knows, for better or for worse, the offense, and he knows, he just knows how to manage a game. Now, that always sounds like poison to a college football fan because you don't want a game manager, you want a game winner. Well, here's the thing when you got the physical tools, but you're not prepared from the neck up, it can be really ugly. It can be really ugly. Uh, and unfortunately, until it's too late, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. You know, a lot of fans, they want to 
Look at the amount of stars next to a kid's name. Watch his highlight film, not his film, just his highlight film. Know what he's capable of doing. And they want him rushed on the field as soon as possible because they know what he can do. Can you do it right? Well, coaches want to know, well, can I put you out there and trust that you won't do it wrong? And until you get to that point, they're going to put the guy out there they trust mentally more. So I'm not questioning Drew Aller mentally. I'm quite literally telling you we have no clue who he is yet. So no, I don't. I think they're doing the only thing they can right now, which is let's go into spring and have competition. That's all you can do right now. Uh, Connor, next up. Josh, I think it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on bowl games being moved to the start of the season instead of the very end. I feel like they would become much more important to everyone involved, but then not so sure on the right opponent being selected. What kind of format should we use? This concept's always been interesting to me. A lot of you guys are into this. You think to save bowl season, what you should do is somehow take the previous year's results and instead of having bowls where they are, I guess what most people would suggest is let's have the playoff as we normally would, but let's also let the previous year's results dictate who you start next season with. So essentially everyone would start with a major out-of-conference opponent, I guess. The big question, obviously, is, well, okay, let's say that you're a really, really good team. Uh, What's a good example to use? Let's say you're LSU 2019, you know, and you are one of the best teams of all time. And so that stands to reason, yeah, you go play for the playoff and national championship game, but also the format would say you've got to start against one of the best teams in the country the next year. Well, the problem is you're not 2019 LSU the next year. You lost all those guys to the draft. You lost all the guys to transfer and whatnot. And so you're, you're bad. And then you got to get beat up on in week one. So would that be fair? I don't know if that would be fair, uh, but I'm not sure anyone would cry any tears for LSU. But at the same time, you know, I'm interested independent of whether this is the bowl structure, I'm just, I'm interested in this format in general. What if, in other words, what if out-of-conference scheduling was taken out of the hands of just you and and Utah agreeing to play a home-and-home in 2036 and 37 and announcing it now? And what if instead your opening game was always determined by some preset list of criteria? Maybe it is how you finished the season before. I'd be interested in that, you know, because at at the very least, it would ensure that everyone's playing equal caliber of competition or close to it, at least some reputable caliber of competition in week one. And it would make week one total, total must-see TV for everyone instead of us looking at the schedule and seeing, ooh, there are four or five big games and then a bunch of FCS programs playing FBS teams. I would be into the concept, Connor. I would need a little more workshopping done on what the actual format is there. That's a, it's, it's a question a lot of people ask, and then they also ask, why couldn't we just wait till after bowl season to seed the playoff in an effort to make bowl season mean something, I guess, like it used to? Um, in theory, the ideas have a lot of merit, but the devil would always be in the details there. Interesting questions there. I think that wraps up the ones I had here, and I want to say that wraps up the ones we have in general. And look, hey, I got an earpiece in that I can't hear from, so... Poor Jesse and Colin are probably talking to me right now and I can't hear him. But look, I do want to float this out there to you. I'm leaving this totally in your hands, okay? As I said the other night, I am very much entertaining the concept of doing consistent Twitter spaces. And if you haven't ever participated in one, they're really interactive. They're really interesting. I asked the other night, I'm going to reiterate it here. I'm going to take feedback for about a week. 
do you have interest in it? And then also, if you have interest in it, when would you like to do it? Is it something you want to do at midnight once a week? Or is it something you want to do first thing in the morning? Um, when would be the best time? And of course, I mean, we don't have to nail down one specific time. We can do these whenever we want to. Is it something you would just like immediately after breaking news events? That's not necessarily the way I'd prefer it, but I also, I also cede these decisions to you, as you know. I just want all the credit with none of the blame. You know, that's what I want. So it helps to put the decision-making power in your hands. But you never know who'll pop in those things, is what I'm saying. So we have a podcast. It's me sitting here, for better or for worse. It's me and you. We do Late Kick Live. It's me and you, again, for better or for worse. We keep doing those, but if we added a Twitter space every couple times a month on there, you never know who's popping in there. You just never know. So um, you'd be surprised. I can guarantee you that. And you could be part of that. So just think about that. Hit me up, joshpate706 at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at LateKickJosh. And I would encourage you to follow me there either way. And let me know what you think about that. In the meantime, I appreciate it so much. You guys keeping our numbers where they are. Make sure you give five-star reviews to the pod on Spotify and on Apple Pods and, and any kind of review system and setting you have. And go, go take grandma's phone and do it on her phone too. It only helps. It helps the cause. So thank you guys so much. For Director Colin, for Producer Jesse and Producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great rest of your day and God bless.